0: Morning, beloved. Well, when I got married, it's been a few years. But when I got married, I can still recall—mind and mind you, by a few years, I mean 13 years—and this is how much this moment meant to me. I can still recall the first time that we made our bed together with clean sheets. Uh, do any of you remember this event? Um, so, first time. This is a team. This is a team effort. Um, we're we're going to put sheets on this bed. Um, <coughs> They're nice and clean. There's nothing like nice, warm, clean sheets, right? Oh, it's so nice. Um, But here's the thing. I get my pillow, and it's time to put the pillows inside the pillowcases. And anyone in their right mind knows how this is done, right? Which way does the tag go? See, I said outside. Yeah. I said outside. I feel the shame right now. (laughs) I said outside, and as I'm putting the pillow in with the tag facing outside, my wife looks at me like I'm a psychopath and says, what are you doing? I said, you put the tag out so that you can pull the pillow out easier. And she looks at me and she says, have you ever pulled a pillow out by the tag? And in that moment, I realized, no, I haven't. But this is how I was taught, and it made sense. And then I cried and thought, I need to rethink my whole life. Um, but that's the question today, are we doing this right? It's Mission Sunday, as we conclude the Gospel of John in our kind of annual rhythm, we have gone through each of the four Gospels in these four years, and we'll go from Christmas at the start um, to the death and resurrection of the Son, and then following that, we'll look with our Mission Sunday at um, what has He actually called us to? In light of this Gospel, what are we called to do and to be as a church, as followers of Jesus? And so we need to ask the question, are we doing this Right? are we doing this right? And in fact, if I'm asking the question, am I doing this right? The real question behind that is, have I already messed this up? And we can think about that on a church-wide level of like, what is our goal? What is the vision or mission of this church? What are we trying to accomplish? Have we already botched that? But then even on a personal level, and that's really where I want to press in today. As a follower of Jesus, What if I'm not doing this right? Or what if I've already messed it up? And if you have any ounce of honesty in you, you know that that's you. Yeah, I have already messed it up. And so what do we do with that tension? And so turn with me. Um, We're going to be in John chapter 20, the very end of that, and then working our way into the final chapter, chapter 21. So John chapter 20, if you look at the last two verses, John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Uh, We have referenced these verses multiple times throughout this series over the last few months. But this is what John is writing in verse 30 of chapter 20. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the purpose of the entirety of this gospel. John wrote this gospel for this reason. He says, there's so many things that I could write in this book. So many things that Jesus did, but I'm not telling you all of them. And so we know that he has curated, he has gone through, and he's intentionally selected these specific things that Jesus did to record them so that we could know that there is life in Jesus' name by knowing that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. That you would have eternal life Meaning there would be forgiveness for sins. There would be a reconciled relationship with God who is life for you if you believe that Jesus is who he is and who he is is the Messiah. He is salvation, God himself who has come to save us from our sin. To take our due penalty, to take on the very wrath of God so that God would still be just and the justifier to say, I have taken your punishment. And thus Jesus dies, the death that you and I deserve, nailed to a cross, he breathes his last having said, it is finished. And we say, what is finished? All of the work to be done. He has paid our debt. Our debt, the the debt that stood against us has been nailed to the cross. It's been erased. We are now free. We are the sons and daughters of God. We have life in the name of Jesus. It's by believing. We believe Jesus. And so we have the gospel. He came, he died, he rose again. He was life for us. And this seems like such a beautiful package ending to the gospel that like, you could just take chapter 21 and leave it off. And like, that was a beautiful closing, John. But it doesn't stop there. It continues on with this epilogue this epilogue is here because I'm convinced John as he's writing this and yes, the spirit of God writing through him as he's probably later in his life an older guy who's been pastoring churches for a long time now. He walked with Jesus. Surely he has read the other gospel accounts that were, that were written prior to this and so he knows the stories that they've included and he's like, this, this is what I need to contribute and he gets to the end of it, this nice packaged ending. This is why I'm writing all this and he's like, but there's something else you're gonna need to know. Believer, there's something else you're going to need to know. I'm talking to you right now. This is Pastor Kevin talking to you right now. There's something else you're going to need to know in following Jesus. So let's jump into this. Chapter 21, starting in the first verse. After this, Jesus revealed himself. So we're back into the narrative. He broke from the narrative to give this nice little ending. Now he's back in the narrative. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called twin, Nathaniel from Cana of Galilee, Zebedee's sons, and two others of his disciples were together. I'm going fishing, Simon Peter said to them. We're coming with you, they told him. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. When daybreak came, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Friends, Jesus called to them. You don't have any fish, do you? No, they answered. Now let me tell you, as someone who loves fishing, I love fishing, as someone who loves fishing, being asked if you caught anything when you caught nothing is almost as bad as the fact that you caught nothing. Like, shame. You know, you're paddling up or you're pulling up to the dock and there's always that person there. Are you doing any good? Jesus stands on the shore knowing, like, we, this is God in flesh. He knows everything. We already know that about him. But they don't know that it's Jesus. They just see a guy on shore. They're 100 yards off, and this guy on shore, hey, friends, you guys got anything? And it's been a long night of catching nothing. And they say, no. Peter, whose idea it was that we would go fishing, Peter's on that boat, and he feels that shame. He has already failed. You recall in the narrative that Peter is the one who, at that um, fateful Thursday evening dinner, when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, and yet he also says, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows twice. Never. That's not happening, Jesus. Absolutely not. A few moments later, they're in this garden. Jesus is praying. Peter keeps falling asleep, and Jesus is like, couldn't you just stay awake with me a little while? Feeling bad about this, I'm just so sleepy. Torches, swords, shields, there's soldiers here. They've come to arrest Jesus. Judas shows up, kisses Jesus, betrays him. They're arresting Jesus and Peter in this moment, still in the back of his mind. He said, I deny him. This is not happening. This is not happening. He pulls the sword out and cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. Malchus, and Jesus heals the man's ear, scolds Peter, Peter, put the sword away. (sighs) What? (sighs) I'm trying not to fail, and I just keep failing in, trying not to fail. And then just like Jesus predicted, they all scatter, they all abandon him. But Peter and John stay kind of in the shadows. They're following and and they stay a little further away, but they kind of get a little bit close and they're there and there's this mockery of a trial happening and you know what happens? Just like Jesus foretold. Three times, Peter denies him. And Peter feels the weight of this, the shame of this. His failure is in his mind. It's in his body that he is feeling this and he has spent all night trying to catch fish and he's caught nothing. And now here's this guy on shore asking if we caught anything. And no, the answer is no, I've caught nothing. The shame that he feels in this. And a shame is a very powerful thing and it's actually not all bad. Did you know that? We often think shame is just altogether bad, but shame is not altogether bad, but it is a very powerful thing. It's kind of like a knife, that you can have a knife, and that knife can be used for very destructive things like wounding you, cutting you, hurting you, and yet a knife can also be used for redemptive things like opening your body up for surgery, where it's ultimately going to be life-giving. And so shame in the same way can be a very bad thing, but it can also be a helpful thing. It's a very powerful thing. And yet, as a powerful thing, its power is limited because shame's power is in breaking, not building. Sometimes we need to be broken. Sometimes we need to be humbled. And shame can do that for us. In fact, Paul, on multiple occasions, wanted Christians to feel a sense of shame about some things because we need to be humbled. We need the effect, the power of shame to bring us down. But shame can only do that. It cannot build us up. What can build us up? that's something that God can do. And so look at what happens next in verse six. Cast the net on the right side of the boat, he told them, and you'll find some. So they did, and they were unable to haul it in because of the large number of fish. The disciple, the one Jesus loved, said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he tied his outer clothing around him, for he had taken it off, and plunged into the sea. Since they were not far from land, about 100 yards away, the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. This is a miraculous catch of fish, that unknown man is on shore, and after a long night of catching nothing, and Peter, feeling this shame, feeling his failure, he hears this guy call out, hey, did you catch anything? No, the answer's no, we've got nothing. And the guy on shore is like, why don't you try the other side of the boat? I'm like, okay, I'm like, Let's throw the notes over. They can't even pull the number of fish in. It's too heavy that these guys on the boat can't even pull in the catch. And John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, it clicks. He hears that voice. It's 100 yards away. They can't see and quite make out who this is, but he realizes it's the Lord. As the others now have this realization, it is the Lord. And their minds beacon back to all these things that they've seen Jesus do, one of which being catch miraculous numbers of fish and Peter says, I'm not going to be outdone that's time, John. And he takes his clothes. Apparently, it's been such a rough night that he's taken off his outer clothes. He wraps them around himself, dives into the water to try to outswim the boat. And he's swimming to shore. Peter's trying to make up for the fact that he's apparently a slow runner. Maybe he's a swimmer. I don't know. You triathlons always talk about how you're better in one than the other. But look at what happens, verse nine. When they got out on land... They saw a charcoal fire there with fish lying on it and bread. Bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus told them. So Simon Peter climbed up and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. Even though there were so many, the net was not torn. Come and have breakfast, Jesus told them. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them. He did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. A long night of failure. Jesus calls from shore, calling out their failure, but then says, try the other side. And it's success they could not have imagined. Realizing that it's Jesus on shore, Peter takes off swimming, the others bring the boat in. And as they arrive on shore, I'm curious to know whether Peter actually swam the boat. But as they arrive on shore, there's a charcoal fire. There's fish grilling. There's bread ready. And Jesus calmly says, let's eat breakfast, guys. And they know who it is. That after everything that has happened, here's Jesus, Messiah, Son of God, standing on a beach, as they're wallowing in their failure and saying, come over here. Let's have breakfast. I made you breakfast. and They eat breakfast together. Now look at 15. When they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord. He said to him, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he told him. The second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told him. He asked him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he'd asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. really one question that he repeats. It's such a penetrating question. It's the best question that Jesus could ask in this moment. Beyond your outward behavior, Father of Jesus, what's inside of you? What's really in your heart? If we can get past the charades, if we can get past the face that we put together to show up and do what we think we're supposed to do, And Jesus stands on a beach saying, I made you breakfast. Now let me ask you a question. Do you love me? Yeah. No, no. Do you love me? Yeah. No, 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 Kevin. Do you love me? And Peter's getting agitated. You know everything. You know that I love you. What's the point in asking? Maybe so that Peter could actually see what's true. These shallow, off-the-cuff answers are not going to cut it in faithfully following Jesus. If you have been following Jesus for any length of time, you have got to realize one day or another, and I hope that that day can be before it becomes so much harder, that there has to be some depth to this. Just coming and putting on a show of I went to church for 90 minutes on Sunday. And I, I I know the right words to say. I know the right way to look. I know the right way to act. If if it never sinks deeper than that and becomes a truly profound, deep, intimate love between you and Jesus Himself, then you have missed it. You have missed it. And the shallow stuff is gonna wash away. It won't stand. We were playing on the beach yesterday, making sand castles and stuff. And I just love them, the kids. Like You're standing there, where the water, the waves wash in, and of course, where do they want to build the castles? Right there. Like, why don't we go up 50 yards, where this is gonna last at least a couple hours. But instead, there's something fun about like, build a wall, we've gotta protect it. And you know what's going to happen. And yet, my mind says, this is so futile, why? <laughs> and yet it's so fun for them. But we know what's happening. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. The water, the waves are coming. The storms of life are coming. Are you just going to get swept out to sea? the words of Jesus, build your house on a rock, on his words. You don't separate his words from him being the word. Your life must be built on Jesus himself. You must be attached to him in a real, genuine relationship with Jesus himself. I so Can you hear him asking you as he asks Peter, do you love me? But again, you imagine Peter in this moment, in all of what has happened. This is the surgery. This is the opening of the wound, and it hurts because you enter into Peter's story, and you think of the times that he denied him, that Jesus had already foretold. Peter, <laughs> In this moment, as Jesus is trying to wash his feet, and it's so humbling that Jesus would humble himself. The Creator of all things is now on his feet, washing the feet of his own creation. And Peter's like, "No, no, 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 this isn't happening." And Jesus is like, "If you don't let me wash you, you have no part with me." Well, I definitely want to be with you, but like, not not just that, but like my head. Like, let's let's go all the way here. And Jesus has to correct him, and it's in that context that Jesus has to tell him, "You know what." Before the rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. Never. Not happening. What are you talking about, Jesus? It won't happen. And then, you know, they get in there. He fails with the sword, and then he's off. And John apparently has some relations with the high priest. And so John gets in, and John's trying to help Peter get in so they can stay somewhat close to Jesus. They're not there at Jesus' side, but they want to be somewhat close because they feel the sense of, like, there's this connection all these years now they've spent. They love this man. And yet now, here's Peter at the gate trying to get in. And this girl's there at the gate. She's like, wait a second. You're with him. You're with Jesus. And Peter's like, what? No, no. Not me. No. Dick. And they come inside. It's apparently a chilly night. You know where Peter finds himself? Warming himself. By what? A charcoal fire as he's warming himself by this charcoal fire with some others, someone else comes up. Wait a second. I know, you're with that guy. What? No. Nope, nope, nope. Not me. Wrong guy. And then Malchus, the high priest servant who lost his ear and then regained an ear. One of his relatives comes up. and He's like, you, you were with him. And Peter is so adamant at this point. He's denying him by cursing and he's swearing oaths. I don't know him. I'm not with him. And it's at that third time that the gospel of Luke tells us that the rooster crows the second time. Peter realizes what he's done and he turns and he looks and Jesus has locked eyes with him. That in all of his shame, in his failure now, three times he has denied the Lord as the Lord is being beaten and put on a mockery of a trial. And Jesus turns and they lock eyes with each other as a rooster crows and it's just like Jesus foretold. Can you imagine the crippling shame Dr. Kurt Thompson says, based on his research, he says that we're all born looking for someone who is looking for us. And that just continues throughout life. We go about life looking for someone who's looking at us, to actually be present with us, to truly know us. And you imagine, Peter, in this moment, you think, is that the moment you were waiting for? Is that when you want to be seen? And it breaks Peter. Peter says that he broke down and he wept. This man who went from adamantly denying Jesus but trying to like secretly stay close, like you imagine him looking over his shoulders to see what's going on, trying to keep tabs on Jesus. He denies him the third time. Now he's angry. He's cussing. He's swearing oaths. I don't know the man. He looks over his shoulder again as this rooster's crowing and Jesus has locked eyes with him and he knows that he knows. With all of the weight of that failure that Peter is holding on to, as Jesus locks eyes with him, because this is what God does. God comes to us in our hiding, because he won't let us stay there. He comes to us in our hiding, Jesus locking eyes with Peter. This is Jesus also playing peekaboo. He shows up, surprise, he's in a locked room as the disciples are doing what after he's died? They're locked in a room, hiding. This has been our story from the beginning that in Eden, after the fall, when once we were right and good, we were in this beautiful relationship with God, we were experiencing intimacy and fellowship with each other and with God, and yet we rebel against him, and in shame, we start to hide that they were naked, they realize they're naked and they're ashamed of that and so they sew together some fig leaves to try to cover their nakedness and then they hear God coming to walk with them in the cool of the evening and so they hide in the trees and God's like, where are you? Like Realizing they've been found out because God comes looking for us in our hiding. They say, we hid because we knew we were naked. They hid because of their shame, because they knew that they were wrong. We do this constantly, and God comes to us in our hiding. He won't let us stay there. What does God do? Those silly fig leaves are not doing anything. So, blood is shed. An animal dies so that he can take the leather, the skins, and make them real clothes to cover their nakedness, to cover their shame as a picture of what would be our gospel, our good news, that God himself would shed blood. It would be his own blood so that we would have clothes to put on. We would be clothed in his righteousness. Our shame, our nakedness would be hidden forever because God does not leave us in hiding. He comes to us and he won't leave us there. He comes in. This is the gospel. We want to look away and hide, and yet God comes towards us. This is so antithetical to everything that we think is right and normal in life. What we want to hide, and we think is going to be repulsive and drive God away, God instead comes closer. In grace, undeserved favor, in love for us, he presses in and says, I have something to take care of that. I will cover your shame. As Paul said in Romans 2, 4, do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? It's so contrary to the way that we think that it's not God coming and saying, I know, Kevin, I know what you did. I told you you'd screw this up again. It's not God coming and saying, what'd you do? Own up to it. But it's God coming in kindness. When we are terrified, we're naked, we're ashamed, and we're trying our best in our own self-righteous efforts that will never add up. We're trying to get away, and he comes to us, chasing us down. And then his kindness overwhelms us. It's his kindness, not his wrath. It's his kindness that actually leads us to repentance, that we would see a glorious God, glorious in this way, that he's gracious, that when I deserve wrath, he comes with grace says, I love you. What kind of a God is that? That is the kind of God who changes our hearts. And so on this side of the cross, on this side of an empty tomb, we run to God with our shameful things. We run to God with what we must confess because he's the one who clothes us. He's the one who accepts us. He loves us. As we see this, and we imagine Peter in this moment feeling the weight of that, and yet he knows he has great theology. He knows what Jesus has been teaching. And yet still feeling the weight of all that shame. I really botched this. I really messed this up. We too, again, have to ask what if I'm not doing this the right way? And my personal obedience to the Lord, when I mess up, and the calling of God on my life, when I don't measure up. And let me just be honest with you, as your pastor, or one of your pastors, I mess up a lot. And this is something I struggle with so deeply almost every moment of my life could be described as me analyzing and critiquing myself like why is this self-loathing this this thing so powerful in me and so it's so easy for me to slip into thinking like you, let me just be honest with you so often i come down from this podium and my first thought is a prayer of me saying i'm sorry god i could have done better do you know what kind of a torture that is? I think most of you do. Because it's so easy for us to live with this idea that it's about my performance, that I have to in some way measure up, and yet the beauty of the gospel, the kindness of God, is that God doesn't let me stay there. And so it says, Kevin, do you love me? Christian, do you love me? And why is he asking this? Lord, you know. You know that I love you. You know everything. You know that I love you. This is why I'm here. This is why I'm doing what I'm doing. But do you love me? Why would he ask this? Because it's him restoring us. It's showing up on the beach full of shame because of your failure. And the first thing you see is charcoal fire. And you think back, charcoal fire. I remember warming myself above that. And here's Jesus recreating the scene for me. Oh, he's about to give it to me. (laughs) This is not going to be good. But instead he says, I made you breakfast. Let's go for a walk. I want to talk to you. (gasps) Oh, Now it's happening. Here it comes. Here it comes. Hey, do you love me? It's a random question. Yeah, yeah. Here it comes. Here it comes. Hey, do you love me? Yeah, did you not hear me the first time? Yeah. Okay, well, uh, do you love me? Okay, now I'm I'm getting frustrated. You know everything. You know that I love you. And what is Jesus saying each time? Let's get to work. It's not over. (laughs) You can't botch this more than my grace. You can't, you can't, fail in a way that will outpace the grace and power of God to be redemptive. You cannot mess this up more than God and his sovereign providence can say, I'll make that beautiful, actually. i love to do that. It's a joy for me. You cannot fail in such a way that he would say, wow, <laughs> let me just write you off. I'll look for someone else. You can't do it. He knows you. He loves you. And what he's saying to you and your failures, hey, do you love me? Because this is what it's all about. Do you love me? Because if you love me, that's what matters. Come on, let's go then. What I called you to, let's get back to that. Peter, feed my sheep. Tend my lambs. Come on, Peter, let's get to work. I called you to this. Let's get back to this. What are you doing out here fishing? Come on, Peter, there is work to be done. I know you love me. It's time for you to see, yes, you love me. You do love me. This is Jesus restoring him, giving Peter an opportunity to realize, confess what is genuinely true. That yes, we stumble, we fail in so many ways, but we have to see what's really down there in our hearts. And Jesus is calling that out. He's like, I gave you a new heart. Now let's see it at work. Bring it up to the surface. This is Jesus giving us an opportunity to see the beauty of ongoing confession. So many times, I sit with you, many of you, and so many others, and we talk about the wrestlings of our doubting and all this stuff with faith. You think, what if I'm not a believer? What if, what if this has just all been a charade? What if my life has just been a mockery that I've tried to put on a performance for just too long, and now I'm not sure what's a performance and what's reality? And this is what I can give you do you love him? Like right now, I don't know about 15 minutes ago when you were doing whatever you were doing, but right now, what is your confession? I'm asking you right now, beloved church, what is your confession right now in this moment? Is he your Lord and do you love him? Because if he is your Lord and you love him, that means you're in relation with him and the promise of scripture is you shall be saved. It does not matter what happened then, what happened now is what is your confession? Do you believe that he died and he rose again? Do you love him? Are you in a relationship with him? That is what matters. I say this a lot, but you know, I don't remember the first time that I met my wife. And I could think, man, I came into a relationship with her and I don't remember when that moment was. (gasps) Do I question the entirety of my relationship with her? No, that is silly. I don't remember the moment that I came into a relationship with God. I know that I have one with him though. So, in your doubting, in your struggling, as you come out of failure and you wonder, what do I do now? You hear the voice of Jesus saying, Hey, I made your breakfast. Now let's go for a walk on the beach. Do you love me? And again, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. You imagine a smile on his face as he looks into your soul and he says, Do you love me? And you answer him honestly because he is the one who will hold us. As Paul said, I'm sure of this. He who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. And you imagine this in context, this miraculous catch of fish. You think back, hey, I know that story. This has already happened. Wait, is this a different story? Peter would think the same thing. Do you know when Jesus called Peter first to follow him? It was in the context of Jesus doing some teaching and them being terrible fishermen and catching nothing. And then Jesus says, hey, hey, try this again. And they catch a miraculous amount of fish. And so, as this happens again, Peter has to be thinking back to this so resonates when he called me, me personally, when he called me by name to follow him. And you see the beauty of how Jesus is restoring him in this moment. And they show up on the beach, and Jesus is like, hey, let's have breakfast because this is personal, as you've noticed. And they sit down and eat, and what's there? Fish and bread. And we think back with our minds fish and bread. Oh, it reminds me of when Jesus fed thousands and thousands of people with what? Fish and bread. You know what's particularly cool about that story? is that's the only one of the major signs of Jesus where Jesus says, hey, watch this. Now you guys get involved. Hey, disciples, you go hand this out. That Jesus invites the disciples into his miraculous work in this thing. To where They would remember that. You remember that day? Like we've seen Jesus do really cool things. He like spit in the mud, wiped it in this guy's eyes took this lame man and was just like, get up, take your bed, let's go. Did all kinds of cool things, but do you remember that day when I just a little boy had his lunch and Jesus handed me one and he handed you one and he handed you one and we just started going out and giving this food out. We fed thousands of people and then we started collecting. We had 12 baskets overflowing. Wasn't that amazing that he invited us into that? And yet again, Jesus saying, come on, get involved. You're not too far gone. I'm not done with you yet. In fact, I'll never be done with you. So jump back in the game, Peter. And let's go. There's work to be done. So get to work. Our missional engagements, our obedience to Christ, all of this is only ever going to be effective and grow as our ever-growing love for Christ does. Jesus wants us to see in this mission he's given us, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, to obey him in all things, to the glory of God, we will only be effective in that because it's an overflow of our love for him. Only because it's an overflow of our love. So we serve from the overflow of love. If you are serving Christ, and I will tell you, like, it may hurt us tremendously, but if you are serving in this church in any way, that is not just an overflow of love, I would rather you step out and learn to just fall in love with Jesus for a while. We can go back to the early days of me and Reggie pounding on things up here. (laughs) And that will hurt a lot. (laughs) But I mean it. You must serve as an overflow of love and the only way that you have an overflow of love is to see the love of God poured out for you and you see that on a cross. God's love was revealed among us in this way. He sent forth his son that we would have eternal life. Jesus, come, taking on humanity, living a sinless life, dying the death that you and I deserve, dying on a cross in our place and being raised back from the dead to say, now you follow me into life when you see the way that God loves you, then you will fall in love with him because we only love as a response to his love. And it overflows. It overflows. And we serve out of that as the old Puritan pastor Richard Baxter said, surely love is both work and wages. The work Wages is all bound up in this idea of love, that when we love, it's calling us to action, but when it calls us to action, it is its own reward that we get to be with God. And so Jesus saying, hey, I made you breakfast, now let's go for a walk, we've got things to talk about. And you feel that sense of shame and failure, like, "Ha! have I just messed this up so much? And instead you hear Jesus and his kindness saying, do you love me? Now, because you love me, let's go. So do you love me? Can you hear the Savior asking you, do you love me? And our failures and successes, we have these tendencies. To question ourselves, but then we look outward as well. Look at this in verse 18. Jesus just told Peter, continue on, pastor brother. And then he says, truly I tell you, when you were younger, you would tie your belt and walk around wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. He said this to indicate what kind of death Peter would glorify God. After saying this, he told him, follow me. So Peter turned around and saw the disciple Jesus loved following them. The one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and asked, Lord, who is the one who's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about him? If I want him to remain until I come, Jesus answered, what is that to you? As for you, follow me. So much of our shame, so much of our sense of failure is bound up in the fact that we are obsessed with looking at everyone else. How are they doing? How successful are they in their business? How successful are they in their seeming righteousness and their ministry success or whatever it is? And you have to hear the voice of Jesus saying, so what about them? You follow me. Look at me. What has our Lord called you to? You do that. You do what the Lord has called you to. You follow him. But you follow him as you hear his voice saying, do you love me? And as you love me, then let's go. Step into what I've called you to. If you love me. Judas was a follower of Jesus. Possibly, or we know, to be a false one. But he genuinely followed Jesus around like he physically did and had them all convinced, except Jesus, that he was a wonderful disciple, a great friend, trusted with the money. (laughs) Judas betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And as he sees the outplay of what he has done, it rocks him. It wrecks him. So much so, that he tries to give the money back, throws it into the temple. They're like, blood money, can't take that. And what does he do? He goes and hangs himself. He kills himself. He puts an end to his life because of his failure. Why? Because his performance was utmost. And here we see Peter also failing abysmally. He didn't get any money out of it. But he also denies Jesus falls away, fails miserably, and yet he's restored. And what does this show us? You follow me. Because performance is not paramount. What is paramount is love for Jesus. What is most important is love for our Lord, to be in genuine relationship with him, to love him. I've said this for years, but I so long to be a church where when anyone encounters us, they cannot help but walk away from us and say, I love Jesus more because of the time I spent with that person. And I'm pretty sure that they had breakfast with Jesus this morning. Like the way they talk about him, they were right there with him. Could we be such a people who would come on the beach and see Jesus having made breakfast and reaffirm over and over and over, this is why I call you beloved, because you need to know that you're beloved? You are so loved by God. As a response, love him and be obedient. As we conclude, uh, there's a survey done some years ago. and There's a survey of Americans asking, what are, what are the phrases that bring the most joy for you to hear? The three phrases that brought the most joy to Americans to hear. I love you. I forgive you. Suffer is ready. Do you see Jesus on a beach? I love you. I forgive you. Let's eat. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for your love. That you would send your son. And Jesus, thank you for your love. That you would come in obedience and humble yourself to the point of death on a cross. As we exalt you you've been given the name that is above every other name. A Spirit, we love you, that you would seal us with this promise that one day we will be fully redeemed. It's as good as done, and yet we long for that day. And so would you continue to work in us, not just to look like we have conformed more to the commands of our Lord, but would you continue to shape our hearts to see the love that you have given to us, God, and then for us to love you in response. So would you grow our love as a church? Help us to be obedient, to not give up, to press on in what you have called us to in this life, to make much of you your glory because you're worthy of it all. We thank you that it is your kindness that leads us to repentance. You are such a wonderful, mind-boggling God. You're glorious. We love you We thank you that this is who you are. And so We'll sing your praises forever say all this in Jesus' name. Amen.